If you have a Bible with you this morning, turn with me to John chapter 2. John chapter 2. If you've been with us this last month or so, uh, we've been working through the Gospel of John together, and we wrapped up chapter 1 two weeks ago. And if you recall John chapter 1, in that last chapter, what we saw was this verbal testimony from John the Apostle, uh, from John the Baptist, and from five disciples of Jesus who will later become apostles. Uh, They testify that Jesus is God, that he is the light of the world, that he is the life, that Jesus is and was the word who came and was made flesh, that Jesus is the Messiah, the, the Savior, the one promised and spoken of by the Old Testament prophets. It's a really strong and convicting start of this gospel. But now we come to John chapter 2, and what we see, actually, is John, the apostle, move from verbal testimony about who Jesus is to testimony through the works of Jesus. What we're going to see happen, starting in John 2, is Jesus begins to start teaching people who he is, but beyond that, he's going to begin to demonstrate who he is he will start to do these things that no one but God can do. And we see that in the very first miracle in chapter 2, where Jesus is going to turn water uh, into wine. Jesus is going to give us this sign. And this sign, actually, we know it's the first of seven in John. John is going to share with us seven signs to show through his gospel to show us that Jesus is God and that by and that by believing in him, that there is life in his name. And so what I want to do today is just walk us through this story, through this miracle. It's a pretty popular story, uh, pretty well known. Um, I think even people in our culture who are not Christians, who have at least heard of this concept of like turning water into wine, or they've, people who have heard about Christians or Christianity, they're like, yeah, those are the people like, Jesus, what's the one thing he did? He did this thing with water and wine. Like, it's on SNL, you know, people have imitated it, mocked it, whatever, but people are familiar with this popular story. But what I hope you'll see today is that this story is actually a lot deeper than most people realize. It carries a lot more weight, a lot more significance than people typically understand. Because actually, this story, this miracle, shows us some very significant things. It shows us, first of all, who Jesus is, Uh, more than that, what he came to do, but beyond that, what he offers us and how we can receive what Jesus came to offer. And so let's walk through this story. Uh, I'm going to break it down actually in scenes, like a play, three scenes, and then we're going to answer some of these key questions about who Jesus is and what he came to do. All right? Ready? One of you? Ready? All right. All right. I'll just ask you questions if I need a sip of water or something like that. I'll I'll do that. So we open up chapter two now, and we find ourselves at the first scene, scene one, which is the joyous celebration. We open up at this joyous celebration. John says this, on the third day, there was a wedding at Cana in Galilee, and the mother of Jesus was there. Jesus also was invited to the wedding with his disciples. 
So we open up chapter 2 and we learn that Jesus is invited to this wedding, that he receives a wedding invitation. So Jesus' first miracle, his first sign, take note, takes place at a wedding party. And I love that. Jesus comes on the scene here and he first reveals who he is at a party. Uh, We'll see that uh, later on, the religious leaders, uh, the very religious of that day, they hated Jesus. And one of the reasons for that is because Jesus had this reputation as a man who was always partying. He was always celebrating. He was always eating and drinking with outsiders, who people you're not supposed to be around. They hate him for this. And now we find him at a party, okay? Start his ministry. Luke 15 says that he was regularly with sinners, receiving them and eating with them. So Jesus is at this wedding, and we learn that Jesus' mother, Mary, is also there along with his disciples. And again, uh, right now, that's five individuals, five men, his disciples. It's Andrew, it's Peter, it's Philip, it's Nathaniel, and it's our author, John. And why are they there? Okay, why are they there at this wedding in Cana? Well, we know actually from John chapter 21 that Nathanael is from Cana. Okay, he's from this town. And the wedding is in Cana. So maybe he had a relationship with the people that are getting married. Actually, that's very likely since it's believed that Cana only had uh, maybe 100 people living in it at the time. So it's this very close-knit group of family and friends. And also we know what's near Cana. What town is near Cana? Uh, Nazareth, okay, which is where who is from? Okay, Mary and Jesus. Okay, that's where they grew up, where they lived, right? And that's a smaller town we know of about maybe at most 500 people. And so there is certainly a lot of connection here amongst these towns, these villages, and these things that we're calling cities, but really a city at that time, 500 people. Okay, much different context. Small community, friends, family, co-workers, and they're gathered together in this moment for a very significant moment. So what you have to understand is that weddings were huge, huge in the first century, far beyond what we have in the West or even here in Korea. Whole villages would literally come together, but not only that, life itself would stop for weddings. Oftentimes, these weddings, they would last for like five to seven days. Okay, those of you from, who are from the States or the West, you're like, oh, we have pretty long weddings. And you explain it to your Korean friends, right? Because right, in the West, it's like you start at like 11 and it goes to like 7 p.m., 8. It's this whole affair and you're dancing and people are excited. And then here in Korea, it's like manufactured. Okay, it's like a factory. You're in and you're out like as soon as possible. It's like... Literally, I've been at weddings where I'm like, i starting to eat and the people are taking away the plates. And I'm like, what is the deal? What is the deal? Right? Every wedding I've even officiated, I've made like a rule. I tell people, like, those back doors closed, quiet. People are talking on their cell phones. Like when weddings are going on, it's, it's just a totally different culture. Okay? Not right, not wrong, totally different. Okay? If we were to go back to first century Israel, like, we'd be blown away. Right? You stop everything, five, six, seven days, and it's just, everyone's, you know, 
in, in this like kind of like retreat center. You sleep at this place, everybody eats together all week, drinking, partying all week long. Okay, people literally leave behind their farms, stop working. And beyond that, what we know is that it was actually socially inappropriate to turn down an invitation. So in some ways, it's not optional. Okay, you need to be there. Everyone would be there. And so Jesus, being a good Jew, he is there okay, with his disciples. But then at this celebration, things take a turn and we're introduced to a problem. It's the second scene in our story today. There's trouble. There's trouble at the party. There's trouble at this party. We see this in verse 3, and it's a big problem. John simply tells us this, when the wine ran out, problem, big issue. Now for us, if you're at a party and the food and the drinks run out, you don't necessarily leave the party, right? Maybe you move on, play a game or something, I don't know. But this was a big deal in Jewish culture because when the wine ran out, the party is over. It means it's time for you to go home. It's actually a sign. Okay, they have this actually even in ancient Korean tea culture. Okay, it stems back from China. When the, when the tea runs out or stops being poured to you, it means get out of my house. Okay, so if you're ever at someone's house and they're like, hey, we've had a nice meal together, you've had some dessert, would you like some tea? Right? If you finish the tea and they don't fill it again, it means go. <laughs> leave the house. That's a polite way of saying time for you to go. They're not going to tell you to leave the house. That would be rude. But they'll stop giving you tea, and that means it's time to go. Okay? Same thing here at the wedding. There's no more wine. What does that mean? Get out. Okay? Time to go. So the wine runs out. Party means it's over, but it's not supposed to be over. And so there would have been quite a bit of social embarrassment here. On the couple, yes. On the family, like the in-laws of both sides, yes, but mainly on the groom. This is an embarrassment. You see, you have to understand, the groom, he is supposed to be in a place where he is able to provide. That is a social expectation. He is supposed to be demonstrating to all his family and to all his friends that I am now able to care for my wife. I've been away preparing for months, sometimes up to a year, for this moment. And now I can't even provide drinks for the wedding. Big problem. He hasn't provided enough for the wedding celebration. And so Mary, being a good mom, okay, maybe she had some role in the wedding. We're not told but she takes note of this. She sees the situation. She's ambitious. And so she brings this issue to Jesus. And then what's following here, what we have here is one of the most awkward conversations recorded in the New Testament. At least it appears that way in the English language. Okay? The text says this. When the wine ran out, the mother of Jesus said to him, they have no wine. And Jesus said to her, woman, what does this have to do with me? My hour has not yet come. His mother said to the servants, do whatever he tells you. So Mary approaches Jesus here and she wants him to do something. 
And there's a lot of speculation as to why Mary even goes to Jesus in the first place with this problem. What does she want him to do, or what does she expect him to do? But I think, thinking through it, reading all the scholarly research on this, I think it's actually pretty obvious. There's a safe assumption here. And that is that at this point, we believe very strongly that Jesus had taken leadership of the home. Jesus was currently the primary provider because we don't read of Joseph, Mary's husband, anymore. We're pretty sure at this point he had died. So Jesus is running the home. He's responsible. And so that could be one primary reason that she goes to Jesus. What can we do? But also, let's keep in mind here that Mary knew that Jesus was the Messiah. She's known that from the virgin birth experience, if for no other reason. Okay? This is the Messiah. I'm raising the Messiah. And so imagine, imagine being Mary with Jesus growing up in your home and trying to raise this boy. Could you imagine? He never has a bad idea. He never has the wrong solution. And by the way, he can do no wrong. So, you know, a lot of parents, it's like you're frustrated with your kids. You're like, you should be doing this. He's like, really? Should I be doing that? I don't think so. Right? Could you imagine? You know, like, (laughs) I'd be so frustrated. Wrong all the time. (laughs) Jesus is always right. (laughs) Right? But you can imagine, right? Any advice she's ever needed, he would never lead her in the wrong direction. He has the perfect answer for everything, even as a teenage boy. Imagine. Jesus was the most wise, intelligent, resourceful person that had ever lived or ever did live on this earth. He is in the house with her. And on top of that, we know he is so caring. We're going to see that throughout his ministry. So compassionate, so kind. And so it makes sense that she would approach him here, right? Any ideas, Jesus? What do you think? They have no wine. And so Jesus responds. Woman, what does this have to do with me? Some of you guys have a new favorite Bible verse. (laughs) What a fantastic way to get yourself in a lot of trouble. So if you're a mom, if you're here today, your son, right? Maybe you're married, your wife tells you to take out the trash or do the dishes. Don't quote this verse. Okay? Don't claim this verse, right? No tattoos. Some of you are going to have a John too. A tattoo. Don't do that. Because okay? actually, this doesn't mean like it sounds at all in English. The term woman here is more appropriately interpreted as the word ma'am. It's the best way to think of it. It's not harsh. However, at the same time, it needs to be noted that it's also not intimate on purpose. He is not calling his mother Mary mom or mother here. It's in between. It's neutral. And the reason for that is because what Jesus is now doing is redefining his relationship with Mary. The ministry has begun. This is a sign. 
And perhaps you recall, I mentioned this a couple weeks ago, you remember that story, Jesus is 12 years old, and he gives a hint of this coming, by the way. He gives Mary a preview of this moment that just happens at this wedding. Remember, he's in the temple. He's talking with the temple officials, with the religious leaders. He's only 12 years old. Mary, Joseph, the entire family, they leave Jerusalem. And I don't know how far they get, but they turn to each other and they're like, it's like home alone, right? Where is Jesus? Have you seen him? Asking his brothers and sisters, where is he? And so they have to go back to Jerusalem. And so they're looking all around. Where's Jesus? Have you seen Jesus? Have you seen Jesus? This little boy from Nazareth. Have you seen? Finally, they find him. And Joseph and Mary approach him, and they're a little bit upset. That's the tone. And Mary's like, where were you? What happened? Right? You can imagine as a parent your frustration, the anxiety even. You've lost your kid. And what does he say? I must be about my father's business. That's what he says. I was doing my father's business, Joseph. Yikes. And now here at the wedding, Jesus is doing the exact same thing, actually. He's looking at Mary and saying, I don't do your business. I'm not about your business. I'm not about your concerns. I do my father's. He's saying to her right now, and it's, again, it's not harsh, but it is matter of fact. He's looking at his mother and saying, our relationship from this moment forward has changed. And so what we're going to see actually from this moment forward in John's gospel is that Mary is now going to relate to Jesus as not a mother, but just as a disciple. There's no more mother-son relationship. It's teacher and disciple. She will no longer dictate to him what he must do. A few times she will actually try to do this. And he will rebuke her, actually. At one point, Jesus and his brothers and sisters come looking for Jesus. They want him to come home. They're a little upset about kind of the rumors that are going on around Jesus. So Mary goes looking for Jesus. And his disciples see Mary out down maybe, maybe I don't know, 100 yards away, 50 meters away. And they run back to Jesus and say, hey, Jesus, your mother's here. Your mom, like, go out to greet her. And Jesus says, who's my mother? Who are my brothers? Who are my sisters? It's you, he says. It's, it's profound, this, this change that happens. Mary no longer has a say as a mother in his life. She, like every other disciple, will be called to submit to him. So we have this significant shift taking place here. And then coupled with that, Jesus says to her, my hour has not yet come. Very significant words. My hour has not come. We're going to see this statement repeated again and again throughout the Gospel of John. And when we do, every single time, know that it refers to Jesus' death. It refers to the cross. So we have to get this imagery and picture because it's actually very significant. In the middle of this wedding celebration, don't miss this, this wedding... Jesus embeds this idea of the cross in the middle of a wedding. He says, I'm headed to the cross. And that seems a bit odd, perhaps a bit out of, a pl- out of place for us, but it's actually very purposeful and very significant, and we're going to get to that more in a minute. And so what does Mary do? 
How does she respond to this changing relationship? Well, it's actually a great life verse. This is one that you could put on a tattoo or something. Okay? His mother said to the servants, do whatever he tells you. That's her response to the changed relationship. Do whatever he tells you. That is the statement of a disciple. That's the life of a true disciple. It sums it up very well. What does it mean to be Jesus' disciple? Simple. Do whatever he tells you to do. Do whatever he tells you to do. So very quickly, things have changed, right? Mary goes from, they have no wine, to now, do whatever he wants you to do. Mary gets it. She understands. Jesus has his own agenda. He is the Lord. He's the Savior. And he isn't going to do some miracle because she wants him to. But he is going to perform this sign because of the significance of what it's going to lead us to, okay, or what it's going to point to. Things are going to be on his terms, his agenda, which brings us to the sign itself. This is now scene three, the last scene in the story, a quiet transformation. Last scene in the story, a quiet transformation. Excuse me. In verses 6 through 10, we now see the miracle, but it's very quiet. It's not like some of the miracles that are going to come in John's gospel. But, we, but what we do have, even though it's quiet, we do have a lot of details on this because we have eyewitness accounts that day. John, the author of this book, being one of the eyewitness accounts. He's there, seated at the table. He sees what's happening. So this is what we have, verse 6. Now there were six stone water jars there for the Jewish rites of pur uh, purification, each holding 20 or 30 gallons. We're going to pause right there. So we see these very large purification jars present at the wedding. And they are quite large. Again, remember, this is a really big party. And we have evidence it's a very large party because of the size of these jars, too. And understand as well, it's a very key part of the story. These are not for drinking, okay? These are not jars for drinking. It's for washing. Okay, that's what we're told. Purification. So at a wedding in the Jewish world, the guests, what we know historically, is the guests would be in this constant state of washing themselves and everything around them. Almost like excessively, okay, like too much. They'd be washing their hands regularly in between every course. Along with every utensil, every plate, every pot, every pan, over and over and over again. One usage, put it in. You're like disposable almost. It's crazy. Okay, wash, 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 in and out. So it's important to have all this water for these purification rules and rituals to be done. Over and over again. Not even out of cleanliness, like to make the fork, fork, there's no forks, but fork clean, okay? It was necessary, according to the law, to purify everything. So we have these large pitchers for that purpose. Then verse 7, Jesus said to the servants who were there that day, people who are, you know, the waiters, etc., waitresses, fill the jars with water. 
and they filled them up to the brim. By the way, we know roughly the size of these jars. It's roughly, each one is roughly, yeah, it's about 180 gallons or 680 liters. It's a lot of water, six of these jars. And we're told there is no room left in the jars. Jesus says, fill them to the brim. It's another important detail. Nothing more that can be added. Jesus wants to make sure everyone sees, the servants see, his disciples see, there's no way to add anything to this jar. They're full. And then the miracle takes place. We're not specifically told how, but the impossible does happen. Jesus doesn't be like, wine, right? He doesn't say anything. It just happens. And he said to them, now draw some of the water out and take it to the master of the feast. And so they took it. So at this point, the water has already been turned into wine. Was it when they put the, you know, the spoon in? I don't know. Was it when it's in the glass and it's being taken over to like the master of the ceremonies? I don't know, but the water has been changed into wine. We're about to see that. Transformation has happened somehow, some way. But what we do know is there's no grapes present. No vine, no seeds. Jesus creates wine out of nothing. And then it gets to the master of the feast, the host. It says this, the text. When the master of the feast tasted the water, now become wine. And did not know where it came from. Though the servants who had drawn the water, they knew. The master of the feast called the bridegroom, the groom, and said to him, Everyone serves the good wine first. And when people have drunk freely, then comes the poor wine. But you have kept the good wine until now. What's he saying here? Simply put, he says, no one does this. This is unprecedented. Why'd you do this? Right? No one keeps the best quality wine to the end. It's totally unexpected. There is an overabundance of this wine, and the quality of it is like nothing that anyone has ever seen before or tasted before. It's stunning. Uh, it's delicious, is what he's saying. Jesus has provided, given, both quality and quantity here. And there are a few things I want to say about this miracle few things before I move on. I want to say about this miracle of Jesus making wine from water. First of all, I want us to know that Jesus did make real wine. Okay? It's real wine. If you research this, there are a lot of groups out there that can't wrap their minds around that reality. That Jesus made wine. Jesus made alcohol, okay? Can't take it, right? It's like, no, and so they try to explain it away historically in a lot of different reasons. And to that, I just want to say this, one word, relax. <laughs> relax. Jesus did nothing illegal here. Jesus did nothing sinful here. In fact, in first century culture, this isn't even controversial, okay? Not at all. Not controversial at all. This is a holy, beautiful, gracious thing that Jesus has done and provided. He's actually giving this 
couple a wedding gift by doing this. And it's real wine, okay? It's real wine. Listen, no one would get that excited over 180 gallons of grape juice. Okay? Not only that, but the context matters. The master of the ceremonies is saying, no one saves the good stuff till last. Do you know why? Because after you've drank for a while, you can't taste the wine after a while. It loses it. So he's saying, no, you start with the good stuff, and once people are a little bit happy, I'll use that word, then you give them the cheap stuff because they don't care anymore. It's controversial. I know, it sounds it, but not here. Okay? It's a wedding festivity, the party. Okay? So Jesus provides wine. Should you be getting drunk? No. Should anybody at the wedding be getting drunk? No. Then they would be in sin. That's very clear in the Bible. But can you drink wine? Yes. Okay? Paul says a little bit of wine is good for your stomach, actually. He says that. Even if it's diluted to a third. Okay? Which you'll read. Fine. Great. Then drink a third of a glass. Whatever. Okay? You can get really legalistic with this. Point being, though, Jesus really did create wine. And he did nothing sinful in doing that. Okay? And what's the point of this? What's the point? Well, there are a few things to take note of. First of all, it's significant that Jesus makes all this wine specifically in these purification jars. Actually, this is the real point. That's very intentional. See, what Jesus was communicating here, he's trying to tell the crowds, I have done something new. I'm here to make something new, and it's not like wine. It's not the point of the story. The picture here is that Jesus is saying, I have come to replace the water of Jerusalem with the wine of the gospel. That's what he's saying. He, he's replacing the old covenant ritual system, all the rules. He's replacing all those laws with a new covenant, new wine. That's what he's saying. This is the first sign we have in the Gospels of this shift moving away from Judaism into Christianity, if you will. It's a sign of what he has come to do. Not only that, but this is a picture that Jesus himself is the good wine, that he is superior to anything or anyone that has gone before him. Save the best for last. That's what he's saying. There's been a lot of prophets, a lot of priests, a lot of kings before me, the best has come. Last. <laughs> the last is the best in the kingdom. And what that also means is that if you choose to go anywhere else outside of him, then you are settling for something lesser. Jesus is better. That's what this is about. Well, then things wrap up with verse 11. This, the first of his signs Jesus did at Cana in Galilee, and manifested his glory. And then it says, and his disciples believed in him. So we see here that John reiterates that this is a sign. Okay, it's a sign, not just a miracle. It's a sign, meaning it's meant to point us to something. Think of it like a parable, if you, if you will. We have a true miracle. Again, Jesus really did turn water into wine. But beyond that, and really above that, this sign is revealing to us something about Jesus himself, what he came to do, and what he will do in the future. See, ultimately, this miracle that took place at a wedding in Cana 
is meant to be pointing us to another wedding, a wedding that is yet to come. It's pointing us to a feast, another celebration that is still yet to come. And so let me break this down for us in the time I have remaining and just have a few minutes. I mentioned this before, but let me work through these questions. It's worth our time. I'm going to do this rapidly, okay? So first of all, according to John 2, 1 through 11, in the story of Jesus turning water into wine, who is Jesus here? Who is Jesus in the story? By the way, a great question to ask yourself anytime you read this Bible for yourself. You don't need me for this, okay? Read a passage of scripture and ask yourself a question. Who is Jesus in the text? Second question you should ask yourself, what has he done? Third question you should ask yourself, who am I in the text? Fourth question you should ask yourself, what do I do? Simplest way for you to read the Bible, ask yourself four questions. Who is God? What has he done? Who am I? What do I do? Easiest way for you to read the Bible. Okay? When I approach the text, even right, preaching the sermon, first question I ask, who is Jesus in the text? Second thing, what has he done? Why has he done it? Second, who am I in this passage of scripture? And then what am I supposed to do? Okay? It's a cheat code. Okay? Easy way to read the scriptures. So first of all, who is Jesus? Well, in light of this text, we see Jesus is the Lord of the feast and the true bridegroom. It's very clear in the text. He is the Lord of the feast, meaning he has come to bring us fullness of joy and the highest quality of joy. He didn't come to bring us wine. Okay? Again, the text isn't about the wine. Don't get caught up about the wine. Don't get caught up in the alcohol. It has nothing to do about it. It's not controversial. It's not the point of the story. The point is that he has come to bring us the highest quality of joy in himself. Quantity and quality joy. In a sense, we see here that Jesus actually saves this wedding, doesn't he? He saves the wedding. He provides joy when there could have been shame. He provides joy when there was disappointment. He provides joy when there was chaos and confusion. And that's exactly what Jesus has come to do for you and I. This is his business. He provides joy where there should be pain. He provides joy for you when you're in confusion. He provides joy for you and in your life when you're in times of sorrow. He is the Lord of the feast. And beyond that, we know that Jesus is the ultimate bridegroom. I believe that as Jesus is sitting at this wedding, performing this miracle, that he actually has another wedding in his mind. He actually has a greater celebration in his mind. He, has, he actually has the height of joy in view at this wedding. Right? You could kind of imagine his humanity, him doing this. right? Because we, you and I do this. Every single one of us here, you've been at a wedding. You've sat at a wedding. And how long does it take you to start thinking about another wedding? You all do it. Every one of you. You sit at the wedding and you do one of two things. You either A, start thinking back at your, other, your, your own wedding. Oh yeah, remember my wedding? Whatever. You start thinking about it. Or if you're not married yet, you start thinking about your potential wedding. You look at the girl, right? Girls do it, right? And you see, you're oh, I, my, my dress is going to be better than that. Yeah, you do that, right? Oh, yeah, wait till I come out, right? I'm going to have five photographers, right? 
double the flowers, right? You do this. This is what we do. It's in our human nature. And so you can imagine Jesus sitting there at this wedding, and he's sitting there and says, oh, pretty good wedding. Yeah, yeah, pretty good wine. Wait till they see my wedding. That's sort of the picture actually here. Wait till they see mine. Oh, there's celebration now. Wait till they see what's to come. And actually, the same John who wrote this gospel talks about that wedding in Revelation 21. And I believe this is the reason that John includes this as a sign. Because he sees this wedding and he sees the joy that it brought, but then he gets a glimpse at the big wedding, the one to come, and he writes this down. Imagine John being here writing these words in Revelation 21. He says there, Then I saw a new heaven and a new earth, for the first heaven and the first earth had passed away, and the sea was no more. And I saw the holy city, a new Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God, listen, prepared as a bride, it's church, the church, adorned for her husband, that's Jesus. And I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, Behold, the dwelling place of God is with man. There's perfect unity now. He will dwell with them, and they will be his people. And God himself will be with them as their God. Or translation, he will be with them as their groom. Bride and groom brought together in finality, in perfection. Listen, this is where we are headed. This is what this miracle at Cana is ultimately pointing us to. Jesus says, I'm going to give you joy, provide you with joy with this wine here at this wedding right now. But this is only a sign of the greater joy to come at the great wedding. So what did Jesus come to do? He's the bridegroom, master of the feast. What did he come to do? Well... He came to die for his bride. That's why he came. And he tells Mary that at the wedding. It's very significant that at this first miracle, at this wedding in Canaan that Jesus mentions his death, it's extremely significant. Remember what he said? My hour has not yet come. And the beauty of coupling those two things together A wedding and a death simultaneously. The beauty of that is this. What Jesus is telling us is that for you and I to have the opportunity or to be able to drink the cup of joy, he must drink the cup of suffering. That's what he's saying. The pathway to joy everlasting The pathway to this great feast that is waiting for you and I, the pathway to the ultimate wedding is the cross. My hour has not yet come, but it will come, Jesus says. And this is what we are remembering every single time, every month we come together and take communion together as a church. This is what we do, right? We remember Christ's death. That Jesus has come to die for his bride, you and I, the church. We remember that Jesus loves us so much that he died for us, that he laid down his life for his bride. 
So here at this first miracle at Cana, at this wedding, we see Jesus as this beautiful, amazing, ultimate bridegroom who came to die for his bride. We're being told the gospel right from the beginning. Easy to miss. You can get so caught up again in the wine that you miss the real miracle. And then third, notice what he offers us. What does Jesus offer us? He offers us superior satisfaction and the ultimate union. Throughout the Bible, we are taught that it's not enough to just know God. Not enough to just know that the Lord is good. But we're actually called to taste and see that the Lord is good. I so appreciate that reminder. Again and again, as I read through the scriptures, I need that reminder in my own life. I need that reminder that becoming a Christian, being a follower of Jesus, is not about signing a doctrinal statement. But it's about coming to a feast. That's the life of a follower of Jesus. It's not signing a paper. It's coming to a table. It's about finding superior satisfaction. And the good wine, the abundant wine in this miracle at Cana points us to that reality, that Jesus himself is the most powerful of all sensations. Nothing is better than him. Which is why the psalmist says, you have filled my heart with more joy than when grain and new wine abound. I believe that's prophetic in some ways. New wine will come. New wine will abound. Oh, you'll taste it. That, that, that master of the ceremonies, taste the wine. And I've never tasted anything like this before. It's the best thing that's ever touched my lips. Oh, my, tongue. Oh my goodness. This is amazing. And Jesus is there saying again, oh, taste me. <laughs> come to me. Do you believe that? that Jesus provides the greatest joy and that he is your highest good. Do you believe that today? Do you believe that in him are pleasures forevermore? That he is better than you fill in the blank for yourself? Whatever it is that you might be enjoying in this life, Jesus is better. Do you believe that? If not, you are headed for a life of great disappointment. Because everything else other than Jesus always comes back dry. Always leaves us wanting more. See, the beauty in this first sign that Jesus provides uh, is that Jesus provides above and beyond. Excuse me. The beauty of this first sign is that Jesus provides above and beyond. There is always more than enough. Only in Jesus does the wine never run out. It's a huge part of this. He satisfies us fully and forever. And if that wasn't enough, he also provides for us, again, this amazing ultimate union. We will see through John's gospel that there are many ways that you and I can relate to Jesus. I love that. It's trying to describe the indescribable. We have all these incredible ways to relate to Jesus, like a shepherd and a sheep, we'll be told. Like a king and a servant. But also here, We've already addressed this briefly, but we relate to Jesus as a groom and his bride. And when we look at these metaphors, there is certainly so much to learn about who God is. But there is also a lot that we learn about ourselves. 
And we can't miss that, that for the church, we are compared to a wife. We're compared to a wife. And what does that mean? Okay, maybe a little bit easier for the ladies to understand in our gathering, okay, above the men. I'm trying to picture myself, what does it mean to be a wife? Right? What does that look like? It means a lot of things. But as we study the scriptures, one of the things that we see again and again is what does a wife long for? We're told this through the scriptures. Well, she longs to be received. She longs to be valued. She wants to be priceless. She longs to be embraced. And that's what we have in the person of Jesus Christ. You know, I've done uh, several weddings. I told you this briefly, but so several weddings in my ministry now, marrying people, doing premarital, premarital counseling. I've married several of you in this room, even. Okay? I had the joy to be able to do that. And it's, it's a unique perspective for me. It's a little odd. I remember the first one. It was like kind of standing up in the front, and the room and the bride are there, and the eyes of everyone's forward. I'm like, that shouldn't be on me, you know? It's a, it's a unique perspective. You're kind of backstage, if you will. But, but I've been amazed by it, having this front seat at these weddings. Every time I've officiated a wedding, the bride always looks ravishing. Right? It's incredible. Right? Beautiful gown and makeup, the whole thing, the hair, everything. She always looks way better than the groom. <laughs> Every time. Right? But what's great for me is actually on these days, my, the, my favorite thing, I, I don't even tell anybody, I don't tell them this, so now I'm giving away the secret if I marry you. But actually, my, my favorite thing to do on those days is to look at the groom up and close as he especially like holds hands with her for the very first time and puts her eyes like this close. I don't look at the bride, I always look at the groom. I love that because it's always the same. So far. You can just see him thinking, wow, I cannot believe I got her. And wow, I cannot wait to get out of here with her. Right? In front of all these people. Can't wait. How lucky I am, whatever. Blessed I am. There is just this infatuation. He longs to love her and embrace her. And listen, again, that's what we have in Jesus. We have one that finds us ravishing. Who loves us far beyond any love that could exist between an earthly husband and an earthly wife relationship. Not even close. It can't even compare. There is no union like the union of this groom and this bride. You and I can take every need that we have to him because he is our groom. We can be assured of his love, guaranteed, because he is our groom. And what Jesus does by pointing us to the ultimate wedding here at Cana is actually... He actually puts in perspective for us our need for a perfect marriage. Because no matter how good your marriage is, no marriage in this room is like the marriage that's to come. 
It fails in comparison. It disappoints. The ultimate union is what we're all anticipating. Whether you're single here today or you're married, the desire is the same. The hope is the same. The anticipation is the same. We are longing for our groom, the groom. Jesus waits for us now, and we wait for him, the ultimate union, which leaves us with the final question, then how do we receive this? How do we enter into this? How do we receive this superior satisfaction and union with Jesus? I love the simplicity of verse 11. It tells us we see his glory and we believe. That's it. We believe that Jesus is the Messiah. And of course, this is why John 2 is written. Why all of John is written, actually. Remember that we may believe that Jesus really is the Christ, the Son of the living God, and that by believing in his name, you may have life and joy in his name to the full. So my encouragement for us today as we close is really simple. The encouragement is simple. Take Jesus as your groom. That's the message today. Take him as the giver of joy, as the one who will satisfy you both fully and forever. And have great hope. Have great hope today. Live your life with anticipation, knowing that our great wedding is coming, a place and a time where the wine will never, ever run out. Jesus is coming soon. He's coming to take us home. Amen? Let me pray for us.